and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business. And this week, it's another one of our influencers with myself, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Tennant. You guys know this. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And as I mentioned, this is another one of our influencers episode. And for anyone who's not joined us before, you know, normally in the weekly episodes of the podcast, we pick particular topics or ideas or concepts to talk about. Uh, but one of the things we were really keen to do is to pick out some people we think have been influential in one way or another, and actually almost more importantly, as well as telling their story, maybe sharing a few stories and telling, retelling a bit of history, but perhaps more importantly, seeing what we can draw from those influences that's worth learning about. And we've, we started uh, many, many months ago now with Steve Jobs. And along the way, we've talked about Leonard Cheshire, we've talked about Erwin Rommel, and in fact, in the last episode, for those of you who caught up with us, we went all the way to the other end of the spectrum. We talked about Dolly Parton. So, Gareth, this week, following from Dolly Parton, who could we find that was most related to and connected where there's a seamless transition from Dolly Parton? So who have we got, Gareth? Yeah, seamless transition from rural Tennessee. It's got to be David Sterling and Paddy Main, hasn't it? Ah, there's that connection. Obviously, Dolly often talks about the birth of the SAS. Let's let's go there. Gareth, where shall we start on the journey with these two extraordinarily interesting and brave characters? Well, I think before we get into sort of the history and, and kind of the story of their relationship, it's probably worth exploring a little bit about why we're for the first time doing two people in one episode and the fact that the history of the founding years of the SAS in the Second World War is so wrapped up in mythology, in storytelling, in sort of boy's own adventure and romanticism that it's very difficult to pull apart fact from fiction. And there are two diametrically opposed kind of views on the relationship between these two individuals. So the traditional view is that David Sterling was the man with the vision and the idea to generate this rogue fighting force in, in North Africa and created the idea of the FAS. And we'll talk about, actually, there was the name had already been used and, and all of that kind of stuff in a moment. Paddy Main, the, as the legend goes, was broken out of a military prison by David Sterling because he knew he wanted him on the team. That seems to be probably quite unlikely. Well, still debated. I, yeah. You know, doing a bit of research for this, half the sites were definitive that's what happened and the other half said not. But yeah. More likely, they'd work together, their paths were crossed as part of lay force a few months earlier. And the traditional view is David Sterling sort of came up with the idea. And then between the two of them and with a third character, a guy called Jock Lewis, they effectively forged this idea and became the founding members of the SAS under David Sterling's leadership. 
there is a opposing view, as I've said, which is that actually Paddy Main was the driving force and that David Sterling, although was there and present at the very beginning, was perhaps more of a minor player. And it was only Paddy Main's early death in the 1950s that allowed David Sterling to steal the narrative and drive this idea that he was the driving force. And so there's a book called The Phony Major by Gavin Mortimer that talks extensively about the fact that Paddy Main's legacy has been undermined and there was an attempt to almost write him out of the history. So I think that's an interesting point to start. Can, can I try and trump your interesting point? Yeah, please do. So I, I think we're going to spend as much time talking about storytelling as we are going to be talking about bravery and leadership. Yeah. And so one of the points that I thought was really interesting was that post-Second World War, my understanding is when you talked about, and you know, we've we've thrown in sort of SAS as if everyone knows about the SAS. The story is in the Second World War, in and I'm going to get my dates wrong, 1941, 1942, in North Africa, this small band of um, special forces, we would call them today, wrought havoc on the Germans in North Africa. But the, going back to the point, my understanding is that post-World War II, certainly in the late 40s, early 50s, and even 60s, if you said, tell us a story about special forces in North Africa, instead of talking about the SAS, which obviously in the 1980s with Iranian embassy siege, yeah. and has since become very, very sort of uh, well-known in the popular domain. But before that time, before the 80s, people talk about the long-range desert group. Yeah. And so interestingly, there is immediately this, well, that's, it, it absolutely, there is no debate about sort of the, the organization, the group, the impact they had, and even the relationship with the long-range desert group. But I think that's really fascinating that, it's as much about the stories that we tell, which bring people to mind. And, yeah. and we, we are inevitably, we're going to talk a little bit about David Sterling and go back to your point about this idea of did David Sterling steal sort of the glory from Paddy Main or vice versa? Who tells the story becomes really important. Yes, that's very true. There's an interesting point about the lens with which you look at history. This podcast is all about the relationship between military ways of doing things and thinking and business ways of doing things. And we try and talk about doing things differently. We try and talk about applying different approaches. It's worth recognising that the term SAS is, is almost common parlance now. I think most people have heard of the SAS, even if they don't know that much about them. The, the idea of special forces is quite well understood, even though and also because they're shrouded in mystery and actually what they do and how they do it is so secretive. The SAS is probably the most well-known special forces unit, certainly in the UK, but, but potentially, worldwide. potentially worldwide, along with perhaps some of the US special forces teams like SEAL Team 6 and, and Delta Force. But in 1941, and in fact, if we roll back slightly, slightly earlier with the formation of the commandos, these ideas, these terms didn't exist at all. And the ways of operating that 
these chaps, and it was mostly men, developed in those years were from a foundation of very, very little experience, mostly trial and error. And I think one of the things I'd like to explore is kind of how you get new ways of thinking about solving problems, how you get that off the ground when you're part of a much larger organisation. And that's why I really wanted to do this episode, because whilst we're going to do Paddy Main and, and David Sterling as the key individuals, there is a much wider collection of very bright, very bold, potentially slightly crazy well, individuals who challenged the norms, challenged assumptions, and did things differently, sometimes with really, really great success, sometimes with disastrous consequences and disastrous results, but ultimately have forged now this new concept of special forces that is so well which i would suspect many people would say is now needs to be disrupted again it's really easy with david sterling and paddy may to get excited about the story and the people yeah. but we're always looking at how can we apply this today and you said something just now which i wonder it, it may be a generalization but whenever i've heard these stories they always seem to be attached to people that you might almost say are eccentric. They are at the extremes. Now, may maybe that's obvious, which is to change something. You need to have people that are not ingrained in that previous thing. Yeah. But on the other hand, maybe there is a, a thing here about one of our favorite words, diversity and risk-taking yeah. and iteration. I think there's some really interesting ideas around that. Yeah, I think you're right. The diversity one's really, really interesting because while the SAS in its formative years, especially in North Africa, building its relationship with the already existent long-range desert force, as, as you've mentioned, became a very diverse group and irrespective of rank, irrespective of background, irrespective of sort of what your role was, whether you were a mechanic, whether you were a navigator, whether you were a, an officer, whether you were a medic, ideas were needed from across the team to solve the new challenges that none of these people had come up against before. But both Paddy Main and David Sterling were effectively landed gentry. And that was pretty typical for commissioned officers in the army in the Second World War. Paddy Main, probably from a slightly lesser well-known and less influential family, but still from a very wealthy background, from a big estate in Northern Ireland. Um, David Sterling's family were incredibly well-connected to the point where David Sterling's mother was a routine guest in the Royal Court. I, and and I there's a there's a danger here. So so the expert on this conversation is Gareth, which particularly given his military background, I'm I'm, I'm very happy to allow that one to happen. But I am nervous. Anyone going has has Chris watched Rogue Heroes recently, and is he taking his history from there? There may be emphasis, but I think the point is made that the the Sterling family knew Orkinlet. Yeah. And so one of the very early points about getting the SAS started was getting permission. Yeah. And part of this was from connections. Yeah. And, and they weren't, this wasn't just, you know, regular army officers 
had a good idea one day and said, let's form this unit. They were already part of a thing that was called Lay Force, which was number 11, number 13, and number 8 commando units, I think. Which, which, of course, in itself was brand new because the term commando in the modern sense... Had that only, was, only that been was, raised a year earlier. That was Churchill, that was where Churchill. he made reference to back in the Boer, the Boer War, the Boers commandos with a K. That's yeah. how they describe themselves. And so, yeah, small, small raiding teams. Small raiding teams. And the commandos were raised to do exactly that: to to raid and disrupt and harass the Germans at a time where the British was rebuilding itself, ready to do more decisive engaged operations. I myself as a, as a Royal Marine, uh, I'm, a, I'm a commando, done commando training, and, and the heritage of that goes right the way back to those beginnings. This was, as I said, it was all new at that time. David Sterling's older brother, Bill Sterling, was part of the small group of well-connected old boys, if you like, who set up the training for commando units up in Scotland on landed gentry estates. Bill Sterling had already become quite a figure in developing new ways of fighting, developing new concepts in forming teams to do operations. So this wasn't out of the blue. David Sterling arguably had, had not excelled particularly well in his army career to this point. I don't think it's knowable, but it is arguably plausible that the only reason he was a commando was because his brother yeah. ran the commando training school and, and was in number eight commando. Paddy Main had joined the Scottish commando, which I think was number 11 commando, and they'd been thrown together in this force, which is lay force, which had been sent out to North Africa to effectively to go and do raids, to disrupt Rommel, and they hadn't been overly effective. And they were being sidelined. And I think, along with a lot of other people from Lay Force, were getting very frustrated with their lack of action. And that gave them the sort of catalyst to drive forward with these new ideas and new ways of, of taking the fight to the enemy. Well, should, we, should we wind the clock back a bit? And should we talk then a bit about these two characters, David Sterling and Paddy Main? Because I, I think... The backgrounds, whilst very different, are very telling. So I know a little bit about Paddy Maine, but I don't know much about the beginnings of David Sterling, other than the fact that obviously it was a very well-connected family. So what's his sort of background? Yeah, so David Sterling, I think, went to Ampleforth, so one of the quite well-regarded public schools. Not a particularly shining success. We've heard, by the way, we've heard that in yeah, so many absolutely. of these things. And, and all the way through his formative career, I think he is, I'm not sure if he's the youngest, but he's first, I think, no, actually, I think he is the youngest of four brothers. Eldest brother, Bill, is going to inherit his father's estate and title and land. And so I think probably, and again, this is me inferring it, but probably felt like he had something to prove, being the younger brother of a landed gentry sort of household with a lot of expectation. Sports? Because that that yeah, seems to be guy. that seems to be a really interesting. By no means do all the sportiest people go on to be great leaders. Yeah, there are clear exceptions, but I think lots of the people we've talked about 
actually sports with a thing. Leonard Cheshire was the example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so unlike Paddy Mayen was a professional sportsman, and we'll talk about Can't that in a minute. Yeah. Um, David Sterling was quite tall, not particularly built, but tall, athletic, but I don't think it fell particularly in sport, and actually had a quite romantic side and ended up going out to France in the mid-30s, I think, late late 30s, to attempt to become a painter. And Isn't that remarkable? If you'd yeah, look into him then. Which, which I think is interesting because we're about to talk about Paddy Main's formative beginning as well, and, and there's an overlap there in that they both have this creative romantic side, which I think when you talk about things like SAS raids, it's perhaps overlooked how important being creative often is. And I think that will become an important point. But he wanted to be a painter, effectively failed at being a painter, wasn't good enough, was never going to make it happen. And so decided he was going to be the first man to climb Everest. Of course. As you do. Yeah. And that was where he was. And, and how seriously he threw himself into it is, again, something of a bit of debate. He was certainly a socialite as well. So this isn't a guy who took himself off to the mountains and, you know, no touring. He was also seen in, you know, nightclubs in London quite a lot, but was throwing himself into this sort of outdoor lifestyle when when the war began. Just just on that, and I I think I'm going to keep banging this drum about diversity, you would assume that these charismatic, brave leaders, from the moment you saw them, you would think these are the people I would send off to set up this elite mm. fighting force. I think Paddy Main might be a little bit different given his background, but David Sterling, if you saw him wanting to be a painter, you would not necessarily say, now, fine, I think when he says, I'm going to climb Everest, you're starting to get the sense, but there is this real sense of, and I, I, I continue to see this in organisations that I've worked with over the years, I think we often do a very, very poor job of understanding people's potential. My instinct is you say, this is the shape of hole that I need to fill. And I'm going to find someone who specifically fits that hole and is of a high quality. I very rarely hear people say, do you know what? This person doesn't quite fit the hole, but their potential is greater. Diversity in the Perhaps you wouldn't have picked these guys. And arguably in the Second World War, I suspect they picked themselves as much as they were. Yeah, absolutely. And David Sterling was quite well known for having, he had a flat in Cairo that was effectively the headquarters of the SAF. Uh, And that created some operational security concerns, should we say. But he would have people come through who had heard about the unit and he effectively would take them on if they were people that his friends had recommended. He invited lots of his old school buddies, lots of these university friends, his brother's friends. And, and so what you ended up with was quite a lot of very posh, landed gentry boys, potentially young unproven. men, potentially unproven, joining the SAS. And I think there is something about that old boys network circumvented the rigid structures of the military 
and therefore in a perverse way that kind of nepotism brings diversity allowed the diversity through okay. now i don't think that is necessarily the best way of doing it well but i think it countered the very rigid process driven army uh, and this was primarily army people although there were some very notable naval officers who served with the SAS later on I think it circumvented that process and allowed a level of diversity, albeit very all posh boys. I am very sensitive. We've said this before with our influencers, which is we almost describe successful people and say, if you do this, you will be successful. Yeah. And I think this is a, an example where we also have to be very careful. My understanding was at this time of the war, there were a thousand David Sterlings and Paddy Mains doing a thousand private armies. And so we have to be slightly careful. There is an element of survivor bias here. I think there absolutely is. And I think we, we all now know the SAS. And as you've already mentioned, you know, certainly more so than the, the Special Vote Service. But there were lots and lots of these small initiatives to create different units that would go on to do really interesting things. A lot of them go amalgamated into what is now the Special Boat Service or the Special Air Service. And some of these things were really successful. Some of them were closed down before they got off the ground. Some of them were successful and then demobbed. Some of them were not so successful and therefore you know, they weren't then invested in further. And a lot of that comes down to luck. So the SAS... And, and this is David Sterling and Paddy Main's SAS, because we can talk in a moment about an already formed unit called the... In fact, there were two already formed units called the SAS at the same time. But their first mission was a catastrophic failure. And if it wasn't for a very specific set of lucky circumstances, that probably would have been the end of this endeavour. Yeah. So should we talk about Paddy Main? Because we, we've talked a little bit about the formative years of David Sterling, but we haven't really introduced Paddy Main. Well, I think unless you've been watching Rogue Heroes recently, I suspect while many people have heard of David Sterling, not as many people have heard of Paddy Main. So yeah, let's talk yeah. a bit about Paddy Main. He was a professional rugby player. He was a fully trained barrister. He was a solicitor, right? Solicitor. Yeah, he, he, I think he became head of the Northern Irish Law Society, he didn't he? he did. So, yeah, clearly a bright, bright man, big man, played rugby for Ireland, played rugby for the Lions, was an international rugby player. Now, rugby, an amateur game at the time, so wouldn't have been the star that an international rugby player would be today, but was still a known figure. His name would have been printed in newspapers. Well, known because actually he was larger than life as well. He so was. there are stories of him browsing as a rugby player. And I think he was he the first of the breed famous for trashing hotel rooms? Yes, yeah, yeah. So a rock star in the making. Big drinker. They were all big drinkers, but but he was the biggest of the drinkers. Big drinking culture in both rugby, big drinking culture in the commandos. Potentially homosexual. Yeah, this is, this is touched on yeah. carefully. So whilst I don't think it's really any of our business whether he was or not, I think what is our business is how that may have affected his relationship with the, the military as a whole and his relationship with other individuals in the unit. There's, there's an argument to say there was some prejudice against him because of this, and there is another argument to say that part of his rages and his anger were 
as a result of perhaps the, the need to repress his true self, given the time. There is definitely a softer side, or certainly a more caring side of Paddy Mayne. So he's got this reputation of being the warrior of the FAF. He was the, the leader that people wanted to follow into battle. We're going to talk in a moment, I'm sure, about the competition between Paddy Main uh, and David Sterling. And that was not just a competition of egos, it was literally a numerical competition to see who could blow up the most German planes. And we'll talk about that in a moment. He's the guy that people wanted to follow into battle. He's the guy that on every mission got through the scrape. People went in knowing they were going to be okay because he was always going to be okay. He was the soldier's soldier. But there was just definitely this softer side of him. So there's several accounts of him holding the hands of dying comrades as they're you know, taking their last breath. There's several accounts of him jumping to the defence of people that are vulnerable. There's quite a lot of accounts of him being quite a thoughtful, philosophical chap. He was a prolific reader. He wanted to be a writer, so where David Sterling was perhaps a a repressed painter who never quite managed to become the, the, the artist he wanted to be. Paddy Main was a repressed writer. He would quite often recite poetry. He would be found reading really quite highbrow novels and books. And he definitely had a side to him that was far more complex than, than perhaps the caricature of, of the soldier's soldiers, like the hero uh, that we know today. One of the most decorated soldiers from the Second World War. We should definitely talk about Four that. Four DSOs, which is well, and there's pretty a, good go. And there's a big discussion about whether it should have been a BC. It was written up for the BC. It was never awarded. Lots of questions as to why. It's been raised in Parliament. Quite recently. He joined the reserves before the war started. So yeah. while he wasn't the professional soldier from the get-go, this was clearly something he was inclined to do. In March 39, he joined the Supplementary Reserve, and he actually was given a commission in the Royal Artillery of all places. And initially, I think he was posted to an anti-aircraft factory in Belfast before he then moved towards the lay force, which you've talked about as well. So that was, I think that was in June 41. So yeah. he had quite a quiet war to begin with. Sounds like the sort of man who wouldn't want to sit around yeah. and man an anti-aircraft. No, volunteered so. commandos, ended up in the Scottish commandos quite quickly. So clearly not a malingerer, not somebody who wants a quiet war. Lay force, it's probably worth explaining, it, it, it was run by General Laycock and it was a commando force put together to, to support Mediterranean operations. Uh, and I think like David Sterling and like Jock Lewis, who is, if you've seen the the TV drama of Rogue Heroes, they're the three officers at the beginning who are who are creating this force, was frustrated with the inaction and the inability to to take the fight to the enemy and was very keen to to get after it. Actually, his way of doing that was to volunteer to go to the Far East to go and join the Famously became the Chindit, but under General Slim to go and to go and do jungle warfare uh, against the Japanese. But he stopped just before he went and did that. David Sterling asked him to join the FAF, and he yeah. said that was quite a good idea. Sterling has historically been the man people think about, certainly at the birth of the SAS, 
but in fact Sterling was captured by the Germans relatively early in the war. Actually, Paddy Main, if I'm correct, became the commanding officer of the SAS. Yeah, he did. We should talk about those first few months of the development of the now SAS. We should talk about the three key individuals of Jock Lewis, Paddy Main, and David Sterling. Unfortunately, Jock Lewis was killed quite early. And therefore, although definitely one of the founding architects, the, the rivalry of David Sterling and Paddy Main is what is what endured. And, and as you say, he became the de facto sort of leader after David Sterling's capture. Lots to unpack in terms of how much of David Sterling's myth is overborne, how much of Paddy Main's myth is not recognised. Well, and more broadly, I mean, we could very easily get caught up with the sort of the the, the myths of it and the rhymes and the wrongs, but I think then starting to talk about what had they created and how had they created it and we've touched on that. Anyway, well look, let's let's come back straight after the break and we'll carry on with the story of our two influencers, David Sterling and Paddy May. Welcome back. So, Paddy Main is a drunk, violent, repressed homosexual Irishman, and he is controlled, calmed, and managed by the eloquent and suave David Sterling. I'm, I'm, si- I'm, I'm sitting here, listeners, looking very nervous with that rather dangerous overgeneralization, which so I think that, would have offended most people. Yeah, absolutely. So, that is the story that we're told that Paddy Main, violent, aggressive warrior needed controlling david sterling was the man to do that that i think is the kernel of the notion that gavin mortimer talks about in his thesis in the book the phony major phony major nearly said phantom major wait then let's talk about what's the phantom major so the phantom major is either a name that was developed by the Germans to talk about David Sterling, or it was a name developed by David Sterling, Sterling to, talk, to about... talk about how the Germans talked so about David it, Sterling. Just to be clear, my understanding is he paid someone to write a book about him. So he he was directly involved in the creation. Yes, he was. Book. Yeah. And I think there's no dispute about that. So and this is this is you know, Gavin Mortimer's thesis is very much that. You know, this idea of David Sterling is a bit of a myth. He's gone as far as to say that he's a Walter Mitty, he's a fantasist, he was a lounge lizard. Um, he alludes to the fact that he he potentially avoided the fight and that actually Paddy Main is what drove this whole thing forward. And unfortunately, Paddy Main was killed in a road traffic accident in Northern Ireland in 1956. I can't remember it. It's around it's yeah. in the mid 50s. In the mid 50s. And that gave David Sterling the opportunity to, to basically tell the story from, from how he wanted to tell the story. I think from everything I've read, that is hugely overblown. There is clearly some something in this. I think David Sterling is definitely somebody who drives things forward by creating relationships, by telling stories, by beguiling people with his ideas. And that's that's the power he had in getting the SAS off the ground. 
So I think there is definitely something in this idea that he wanted to write the narrative in a way that reflects well on him for not only his own legacy, but also for his own interest, his own business interest and stuff post-war. Given what he was so good at, I don't think that's necessarily surprising or bad. No. The bit, the bit that struck me, and we've, we've not talked about Jock Doc Lewis too much, is what potentially made them so successful was that they had this diverse group. Yes. Jock Lewis, the professional soldier, the, the technical person, the person who said, I think we can find a way of creating some yeah, explosives. Yeah. David Sterling, who could walk into the general officer commanding and say, you need to give us these Hello, things. Uncle Orkin. Hello, Uncle Orkin. Yeah, yeah. Paddy Maine, who had the raw courage to drive a Jeep on multiple occasions, and we'll, we'll, we, should talk, heavy we, we can talk and, about yeah. in, in Northern Europe as well. Actually, each one of those may not have created the SAS. Yeah, together. together and, I think this is, I hear this talked about in executives, which is you want to pick a balanced group. Yeah. You don't want all the same people with the same skills. You want to pick different people with different skills and different. I think we pay a lot of lip service to that because I think you hire for someone, you say they seem good, I'll hire them. It's actually not as frequent as you might imagine where there's a genuine and well thought out yeah i need a bit of balance here there's this person who is you know traditional has been doing it for 20 years and there's this person who's sort of different so i love the idea i think we've sort of banged on about this that diversity is this idea of somehow a an hr imperative but actually the more interesting thing is diversity as a way of bringing unexpected ideas and, and contexts and ideas for how to do things together. This was a group of people trying to solve new problems in a way with little support, notionally, yeah. who had not done it before. And so there's this, this both luxury and danger of them having to experiment. And you made the point, the first attempt of the sort of that generation of the SAS attack they all nearly died. I think they yeah. jumped out of an aeroplane into a sandstorm. Well, jumping out of a plane, maybe that's not a great idea. Oh, yeah. You've got a truck. We use your truck. So I, I think this is where your point about those combinations of different skills, different approaches, different attitudes, you know, really came together. And I think we've got to be really careful that we aren't oversimplifying this as well. There were a lot of very influential people. There were a lot of very ingenious people who were involved in the in the origins of special operations writ large but also the development of the SAS as it became the three that we talked about Jock Lewis David Sterling Paddy Main clearly had their own part to play in that and I think the first thing to just sort of touch upon is the legend of the founding of the SAS as a parachute regiment in North Africa was this idea that these officers went out and, and jumped out of planes to basically see whether it could be done. And, and that's very much what happened. Jock Lewis and David Sterling, with a group of, I think there was 16 parachutists in the first jump, basically jumped out of an aircraft that wasn't designed to do I, jumping. Again, I'm sure this isn't correct, but I think I've heard story how they tied their static lines so this is the line that when you yeah. jump out of an aeroplane, it effectively releases the parachute. 
they tied them to the seats. Yes, yeah, they did. And but this this again has become this kind of myth about they stole the aircraft and nobody knew they were doing it. It was known about, it was an idea. It was sort of the reason they were doing it in an aircraft that you couldn't you weren't supposed to parachute out of because, because there weren't any, not because they stole a post aircraft from a you know, unguarded airbase or something. It was a crazy idea, and they did. Jock Lewis and David Sterling both were injured in this jump, and Paddy Main, you know, was was also injured uh, in a jump later on. So all three of them had bad backs as a result of early experimental jumping. But Jock Lewis was the driving force in this idea. And you've mentioned the Lewis bomb, I think, already. Jock Lewis was effectively the the inventive ideas man for this new way of doing things. He created the Lewis bomb, which was a bomb that would burn long enough to also be an incendiary that they could stick onto aircraft uh, and they would be able to do these sabotage operations. Initially, the idea was they were going to jump into the Western desert behind enemy lines, parachute in, small teams, go and do these raids. And then they had to work out how they were going to get back out again. And that's where the relationship with the long range desert group is, is born. So the, the long range desert group would then go out and pick them up. And they were experts in desert survival and desert navigation. The first raid was a was a bit of a failure. Um, partly bad decision making, partly the, the luck of one of the worst storms ever recorded. Well, presumably an element of not done it before as well. Not done it before. It's easy in hindsight, as you know, Gavin Mortimer does to, to say reckless. Stupid decision, you know, shouldn't have done it. Here's David Sterling being the, the reckless crash. You know, and I think you know, these are people who are trying something new, proving concepts, doing things in the unknown, taking risk when it works. Everybody with hindsight says, well, you know, who, who dares win? Literally the motto of the SAS, you know, of course you have to be a risk taker. The risk takers well, are the people that this... succeed. And then when they don't succeed, very easy to throw stones and say, you what a reckless call. And, and I think, you know, firstly, I don't think it would have just been him on his own making that decision. I've been in situations where the risk is, if the operation doesn't go ahead, we're not going to achieve the mission. If it does go ahead, there's potential that the tide, the weather, whatever it is, you know, are just on the, on the margins of, we have to make a call here. And I've been in these situations, and it's very rarely a snap decision by the commander. It's normally a team of people, the intelligence officer, the meteorological officer, the tactical commanders who are going to actually take the risk. It's a it's, it's a, a discussion. I did fear we were going to end up just talking about the heroic deeds of the SAS, but as with all of these conversations, you dig a little bit deeper and you see things that are relevant today. Actually, what we're saying is there is no simple algorithm to say whether something was good or bad. You can't just say we've got the best people. They'll it, whatever they do is right. You yeah. have to you have to be thoughtful. Yeah. I've, got, I've got another one for you though. This occurred to me when organisations have time and resources. Yeah, they will often use those time and resources. If you constrain an artist often they will come up with a better outcome. What do I mean? Yeah. If you give an artist a blank piece of paper that's regular A4 size and say, draw me something amazing, yeah. 
okay i'll give that a go if you say you've only got half the page you've only got these three pencils now go do me something amazing weirdly yeah actually as human beings often those constraints give us value take it back to the sas and to, to lewis and sterling and maine i wonder whether there is an element of they didn't have choice they didn't have time they didn't have a lot of money and so therefore things that we might talk about and almost raise an eyebrow at the, the one example you've got which is you know they jumped out of airplanes that weren't designed to jump they had no choice they yeah. had to come back. much of my knowledge is sort of things that i've heard from people but one thing i have seen this is fantastic you can go to the imperial war museum website yeah but there is film of the SAS training to jump out of aeroplanes. Have you seen this footage? Uh, yeah. So for those people who yeah. haven't seen this footage, it is video of, I think it's one or two flatbed military trucks, and literally people jumping out of the back of these trucks while they're driving at 20 miles an hour, yeah. and then rolling to simulate. Now, first of all, that's absolutely amazing in terms of how do we train people to jump out of airplanes we'll push them out of the back of trucks doing 20 miles an hour because that's the best we've got but there's a perfect example of we are constrained yeah we don't have lots of airplanes we don't have lots of time i think you're right i think you know jock lewis was the innovator coming up with the inventions and the methods and the tactics for the way to conceive these sabotage operations I think Paddy Main was the tactical leader. He would come up with the ideas, the creative ways of taking the enemy by surprise. He had, by several accounts, a sort of sixth sense for what the enemy was going to do in response to what they were going to do to surprise them. He would know how they were going to react to you know, the initial explosion going off. And so he would know where to be to double that surprise. And he was just, people wanted to be on his raiding parties because he got those results. David Sterling knew how to play the strategic game. And this, I think, is the, the combination of these two individuals, because Jock Lewis was unfortunately killed in a raid quite early on in 1941. And so what you've got is Paddy Main, who's got this tactical brilliance. He can take surprise to the enemy, he seems to be fearless. He seems to be relentless in his pursuit of taking the fight. And yet David Sterling can piece that into a strategic concept that he's not only going to allow the brilliance of Paddy Main to create strategic success, but it's going to create the journey that's going to mean the enduring success of the SAS. And there is an awful lot to suggest that Sterling is you know, driven by potentially his own ego that he wants his regiment yeah, or personally he wants it to be a regiment he wants it to to be formally recognized he wants it to grow he wants it to not be something that's just demobilized at the end of the north africa campaign and he's constantly trying to think about ways to do this and he goes as far as to invite randolph churchill to to join the SAS. so that's churchill's son churchill's son who is by all accounts, a bit of a thicko. He takes after his father, a, a, a rather rotund and larger, well-fed man who potentially wasn't the fittest. And he, there's lots of accounts of him weaving. Can I just say, don't knock that. <laughs> that means I have a chance at the SAS. <laughs> and there's lots of accounts of him 
wheezing and huffing and puffing, which I find quite amusing. Um, Churchill wrote to his son and in a sort of backhanded compliment said, I'm I'm delighted that you're you know joining this unit. It's very exciting. But I have been told that parachuting is slightly more dangerous for the larger man. And he writes this in a letter. So he's clearly, you know, a bit But isn't that, isn't that genius? But the, to the point about the strategic yeah, goal is that's fantastic. And it, it works, it plays out perfectly because Randolph Churchill happens to he begs Sterling to take him on a raid. Sterling is adamant he's not going on the raid. Eventually, like you can come as far as the final RV, and then you can stay with the long range desert group who are gonna wait. We're going to go forward on foot, do the raid, come back, and then somebody gets injured. And, and guess who is ready to stand up and, and jump into the team? It's Randolph Churchill. And they end up going into Benghazi. Uh, so we should talk about the Tamat attack, which I think is the, the, the famous one. And there's lots of stories about Paddy Main here. But Benghazi, I was not as familiar with this story. So Benghazi, a city that was held by the Germans yeah. and Italians. I think it was a combination it was, of those. Yeah, yeah. They infiltrated into the city. Yeah, and it's typical. It, it's typical of the SAS at the time, where it's a combination of guile, surprise, brash, sort of just big balls. If we do it, they just they, won't believe they, we're going to do it. They use captured trucks. They use captured trucks. They use people that spoke German, and they would do things like so. There's a point where it's all gone a bit wrong, and they're inside the city, and and they've decided that this, this sabotage operation is going to be a reconnaissance operation now because for whatever reason, they can't carry out the sabotage. And they're also trying to work out what their exit plan is because this is a highly garrisoned city. So the guy that speaks the best Italian like, pretends that they're a group of Italian troops, marches them through the city to the edge of the city. Randolph Churchill is one of these people. So the son of the prime minister is in an occupied German-Italian city. Dressed in enemy uniform. Dressed in enemy uniform, so would be... And the commander order's already been issued by Hitler, so he's going to be executed if found, marching brazenly through the town. So much so that a group of Italian soldiers who are presumably milling and, you know, meandering about and shouldn't be, join the column. So there's these British... SAS soldiers walking, marching in formation through Benghazi. And the only way they get through it is that the, the person who speaks Italian, who is pretending to be the officer, marches up to a sentry position and then berates them for not carrying out checks properly because, by God, how, how could you know we could be undercover British commandos being sent here to be saboteurs? And this embarrassed Italian officer sort of jump to attention and start shouting people. And then they let them through and the Italian soldiers that are with them have sort of seen this interaction and want to melt away and, and the FAS got to get up into the night. Randolph Churchill then writes to his father about how wonderful it was. He over-exaggerates his role in this operation. He writes himself in as the hero. Churchill, who's a sucker for these kind of things anyway, he wrote the order to build the SOE, to build the commandos, loves this kind of lateral thinking, different approaches, uh, and that gives David Sterling the the lever then to, he eventually meets Churchill, he's built that relationship, and he leverages that to get 
Churchill to back the FAF. And it's probably one of the uh, the final acts that allows the FAS to continue beyond the North Africa campaign. I mean, it's an incredible story. And, you know, we'll talk a bit about Tamek, the Tamek raid, which I think happened before then. Yes. That, you know, part of the reason is we love heroes. That's incredible. Let's go back to Tamek, because I think this, and, and let's bring it a little bit to, to Paddy as well, because I... This is one one area of Paddy Main that I've heard lots of discussion. So they have formed the SAS. They have recognised that perhaps jumping out of an aeroplane isn't necessarily the safest way to do things. And by definition, they had, or not by definition, but luckily they'd bumped into these terribly nice chaps who had this thing called the Long Range Desert Group, which incidentally was formed by a crazy explorer who had spent years wandering around the deserts of North Africa and said, I think we can drive trucks into places no one else believes we can drive. Yeah. Another, yeah. another example of these really interesting, yeah, Ralph slightly, Bagnold, yeah. slightly eccentric customers. But anyway, they've, they've, they've said they're going to do it. And the mission in North Africa is to sort of set the Nazi war effort al alight. And one of the key things in North Africa at that time was air power. And, and control of the air. If you controlled the air in vast tracts of flat deserts where a truck, a tank, a car is going to lift dust, planes are a bad thing. You do not want the enemy to have air superiority. And so the, the message went out, you need to help us destroy the German air force. And so they conceived of, I was going to say this raid, but I think I'm correct in saying it was actually a number of raids yeah. on a number of airports. But do you want to pick up the story? So they they split into small teams. There are three airfields, I think, that they are, that they split into sections to go and destroy. They go out, they've got to get onto these, they, they are unguarded. They're, so there's wandering countries, broadly, but, but they're yeah. This is so deep into the Western Desert. Um, they don't expect the British to be able to get this far. These concepts of special operations don't exist. No one else is really doing it. The Germans actually don't ever do anything like this throughout the whole of the war, uh, and this is new. So yeah. and they're and they're they're to your point about inventing things. So the long range desert group have these very large trucks. Yeah. They have these, I think they're American trucks and they put guns on things like this. But I believe this was the raid where the SAS first started and this was carried on throughout the Second World War. They had Jeeps because the Jeeps were smaller, more nimble and faster. And they took effectively First World War machine guns, the Lewis yeah. gun, yeah. that were typically used in aeroplanes. I think by the time they had Jeeps, they had Vickers, I think. Vickers machine yeah, guns. By the time they had the Jeeps. And they yeah. found a big stack of these yeah. things. Um, and so they they were effectively this force of jeeps with machine guns. And so how do you attack an airfield? Well, there's two ways to do this. The first way is to go and plant explosives, yeah. which they did. And the second way was to drive up and down rows of aeroplanes in these yeah. jeeps, firing at them. So, so they've done several raids by this point. There is a, there is a genuine competition now with a scoreboard between all of the various catching commanders, but but David Sterling and Paddy Main have this ongoing competition. The first few raids, David Sterling doesn't manage to destroy any aircraft. One is 
they trigger a, an Italian sentry um, and they end up withdrawing and then trying to reattack. But by that point, the aircraft have been moved off for safety and actually end up going to the airbase that Paddy Main was attacking. So all of David Sterling's targets are now on the airbase that Paddy was. So he managed to get a, a higher number. So over the, the few few months that they've been doing these raids, the, the, the score is you know, wildly in Paddy Main's favour. They get to an airbase to do a raid. I think there are three airbases. And Paddy Main lays out these Lewis, or his team lay out the Lewis bombs, and I think they've got damp. And most of the most of the charges don't go off. And the team sort of are a little bit put out by this because they've only destroyed I don't know, six of the whatever aircraft. Can I read Maine's official report? Yes. The following damage this is his notes. Sure. The following damage was done in or in the vicinity of the aerodrome. A, I love it when you start with A, bombs were placed on 14 aircraft. B, 10 aircraft were damaged by having instrument panels destroyed. There's a, a story that he ripped, ripped out, out a panel by hand, yeah. To show his that he was stealing these instrument panels. C, bomb and petrol dumps were blown up. D, reconnaissance was made down to the seafront, but only empty huts were found. E, several telephone poles were blown up. I noticed they didn't have that in the most recent dramatised version of blowing up telephone poles. F, some Italians were followed and the hut they came out was attacked by submachine gun, yeah. pistol fire and bombs were placed on around it. There appeared to be roughly 30 inhabitants, damage inflicted, unknown. Yeah, so it, it's a, an, an aircrew mess and they're all sitting there drinking and not expecting to be attacked. Um, the, the story goes that Paddy Main kicks the door door in, Tommy gun in hand, and says, evening, gentlemen, before unloading. The reality is actually Paddy Main had a pistol and two of his soldiers with him had machine guns. He did kick the door in. Whether he said, evening, gentlemen, before opening fire, God only knows. And they unloaded into, uh, into this aircrew room. Now, David Sterling said that that was beyond the pale. It was unarmed. Not, it was unarmed, unarmed troops. It, it wasn't a civilised way of fighting war uh, and, and was really annoyed by it. Subsequently, later on, does something very, very similar where he throws grenades into uh, a barrack room of sleeping soldiers. Now, you could, and, and people have said, what a hypocrite. I think, from what I understand, that time it raid is quite early on. I think David Sterling went on a personal journey and understood what sabotage raids are all about. And actually, by the time he is in a position to do it himself, has, has understood where the where the rules are and where they're not. And, and ultimately, this is what raiding is all about. This is what sabotage missions are. And it's yes, it's it's cruel. It's violent it's not fair but that's war and well, this the is, mission this is the mission and so i think there's a lot that you could take from this but effectively paddy main has already recognized that and and he's either his threshold for violence is, is is lower he doesn't care or he has already worked out where where the where the mission is and where it isn't i don't know i don't think we will ever know I don't think it's fair to say David Sterling was a hypocrite who expected one thing of his 
you know, subordinates and did a different thing. I think David Sterling probably went on a journey himself. There's, there's a raid where the, the Lewis bombs, as I said, the, the fuses are damp and they don't go off. And so the soldiers are a little bit disgruntled that they've only had a partial success. And they're sort of about to pack up and get, get out of Dodge because, you know, once the bombs have started going off, clearly the enemy are now alerted and they've lost that initiative and that surprise. Paddy Main, however, has different plans and sees that whilst they're running around trying to put fires out, they think they're being attacked from the air. And he decides to mount up on the on the trucks and just drive straight down the middle, shooting the Vickers machine guns at the soldiers who are trying to put out fires and destroying all of the aircraft that haven't been destroyed. And again, I think this shows Paddy Main's ability to see the initiative and see the tactical advantage. And all of this has been followed down to the oversimplistic view of there was this competition. You know, Paddy Main versus David Sterling. David Sterling, the creator and the ideas man, but is wholly jealous of Paddy Main's success and valour and, and all the things that he's not. And I think that's just a wholly oversimplistic, unhelpful interpretation. And I think the reality was there probably was some jealousy, there probably was some animosity, but to boil it down to that as, as the fundamentals of their relationship, I think is, is, is far too simple. And as we said, this process they went through, and you can see in David Sterling's reports back to GHQ, he's immensely proud of what his unit is achieving, even though he is personally disgruntled by his own lack of success. And I think some of this just comes down to sheer luck. A lot of these things, when you're talking about sneaking into occupied territory, using nighttime to surprise the enemy, raiding. You know, these things are often, it's, it's the tiny bit of good luck or bad luck. Well, it's, a, it's a combination of confidence as well. Inherent yeah. skills, ability to adapt, it's all those kind of good things. So that, that first raid, the Tamak raid, just focusing on Maine for a second, he received the DSO, the Distinguished Service Order. Yeah. Later in the war, he went on to get, I think it's Service Order and Bar, yeah. which is effectively a Another second. One. Yeah. And then second Bar. So he, he got a fourth. He got a fourth DSO in the end. It, it is clearly he was a brave man. And I wonder whether there's an element of people think he was a bit crazy. Do you know I, what I mean? Well, yeah. There's an element of like, why would anyone put themselves through this? And in fact, just, just to, this is this is something I wanted to do, but giving our sort of statement on what we think he did and how we think he did it isn't quite the same as when you hear the citation. Yeah. So, I, I I wanted to to sort of read one of the citations out. There's a number of these, each one of the DSOs he got, and as you'd implied, there was a suggestion that he should have actually got a Victoria Cross. In fact, we can. Maybe talk about that, but and I'm I'm picking almost at random here. This is his third distinguished service order. Yeah, March 29th, 1945. So as we mentioned, he became the commanding officer for uh, the the first SAS regiment, 21st Armored Group, British Army. The citation reads: Lieutenant Colonel R. B. Main DSO has commanded the first SAS regiment throughout the period of operations in France. So once they finished in North Africa. They actually went through the Mediterranean and then into, into northern France. On 7th of August 1944, he was dropped to the Houndsworth base located west of Dijon 
in order to coordinate and take charge of all available detachments of his regiment and coordinate their action with a major airborne landing, which was then envisaged near Paris. He then proceeded in a jeep in daylight to motor to the game base near Paris, making the complete journey in one day. So this is occupied France. This is not, he's behind the lines. He's driving all day to, from one base to another. On the approach of allied forces, he passed through the lines. So he goes now from occupied German territory through the lines to contact the American forces and then lead back through the lines his detachment of 20 jeeps for Operation Wallace. During the next few weeks, he successfully penetrated the German-American lines in a jeep on four occasions to lead part of reinforcements. Actually, I think it re- there really is a question of when does courage become foolishness? Yeah. Now, I am certainly not suggesting Paddy May was foolish, but he went through the lines multiple times, each one of which is dangerous. Yeah. The final sentence, it was entirely due to Lieutenant Colonel Maine's fine leadership and example, and due to his utter disregard of danger, the unit was able to achieve such striking success. You can read all the other citations, yeah. by the way, and there's actually a, a, a story, the last the last award, I think this might have been the final DSO, was him driving his Jeep in open, under enemy fire, multiple times to rescue people yes. and to bring them back. So this was clearly a man of enormous personal courage. Yeah, and I, I think the the conversation about courage versus craziness and you know i don't think i don't think it's a spectrum and and somewhere on it there's a point where if you cross that line you can say this man is crazy courage is about facing challenge the adversity whatever the, the circumstances despite the misgivings you might have despite the anxiety despite the unknown consequences and yeah, it comes in many forms, but the two the two most obvious are physical courage, picking up a group of soldiers and driving into enemy fire is a, an act of physical courage. And then we've talked before about moral courage, the, the idea to speak out and do the right thing. I think it, it's very difficult for us, you know, in our comfortable studio 80 years on, to you know, ponder the mental health of these people. I think it is definitely worth recognising that it's subjective. Yeah. And there is a lot of activity that was written up in citations and awards were given for acts of courage, acts of bravery, acts of heroism, that in other people's reports are written down as dereliction of duty, ignoring orders, not doing what they're told, being Ill, ill-disciplined, being reckless. And, and these things, you know, create the story from different perspectives. And, and so it's a subjective thing. One of the, we talked a lot about survivor bias as we've kind of gone through this, this episode. I think one of the things that we have to recognise is the SAS now is infamous, glamorised, romanticised, and, and a lot of the things they do they do despite the rules and despite the sort of overarching bureaucracy of the wider system. And, and everybody loves an underdog and everybody loves somebody who sticks up two fingers to authority. There's a point where Montgomery tells Paddy Main not to do something and he deliberately just completely ignores it and carries on. 
and there's a point where David Sterling does something very similar to Walking Lab two years earlier, it, and, and we love that because well, we, we know that. we know it ends in surprise. We know that's exactly the point. But uh, there's stories about in their training. So you talked about them jumping out the back of lorries, but in their training, in order to build leadership, build small team leadership, to build initiative, to they get them to break rules, and there's there's stories of them feeling all of the comfort to build their camp from a South African camp that's a couple of miles down the road. They, they need trucks to carry out some of their operations. So they just go and steal them. But they carry out raids on their own side. Clearly, they're not killing people, but they are stealing equipment. And, and we like to look back on that and glamorise it as, you know, well, because they the roughish heroes. The roughish heroes. Nicely done. Yeah, well, I did that. But no one ever says what happened to you know the poor captain trucks. who woke up and had all his trucks nicked. Like yeah. was he, you know, sacked and sent back to the UK? Did they not able? Were they not able to carry out their operations? Are, are we really saying there's a danger here that when you start to find a group that display the courage, display the sort of the 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 novel ways of doing things that show success? there's an even greater risk they might do something terrible and that's okay we we let them do it as in was there someone saying don't do this that's too far but you can do that and so i think there's a modern parallel which is and i've seen this where if a team has done a good job yeah go do that again and go do that again and that's great fantastic they've already demonstrated they can do it but then when you say okay what oversight did you place on the team because we place normal protections or process in place to protect what we're doing. What process did you, well, we didn't because they're cool and they have to move fast. I hear this all, I've heard this. This yeah. is one of my my most ranty stories about a previous role where I was told they could do something that was clearly a terrible, terrible idea, but that the business felt, what was I, I didn't know what I was talking about because they were cool. And so yeah. it's those really interesting balances. Yeah, I think for me, I, I don't know. I don't know where the balances are. And it's very difficult to, as we said, you work through the various different logs, papers, citations, books, interviews to work out the truth. And I don't think the truth matters too much. I don't think it does. I think it's enough to learn, actually, yeah, already. What we have to recognise is the subjectivity of all of this. and huge success by being different by being agile by having a diverse group of people and in fact one of the unsung heroes that we've not mentioned is a guy called mike sadler who was actually from the long range yeah, desert group, group and doesn't actually know at what point he was recruited into the saf it just kind of happened he kind of migrated in because when the saf moved on he went with them but was never formally actually invited in he eventually commissioned but early on he's a he's a junior nco in the long range desert group an expert navigator he effectively is the guy who creates the conditions for a lot of the success of the saf in those early raves and and it's the it's those diverse people opinions groups allowing them to work together to solve problems that gives the SAS their agility and their flexibility to go up against a, a much larger, more formalised force. The purpose of this was we've got some two really interesting characters 
And obviously we can't help but talk about the organization that they helped form and create. So what, what are your, in fact, I tell you what, why don't I start with my big takeaways? Because I know this is one you've been thinking about for a while. The first thing that we've talked about was the value of diversity. And yeah. in its truest sense of the word, we have the Mike Sadler, the expert in navigation. We have David Sterling, who can walk in and charm quite literally, apparently, the pants off people. We have the Lions warrior in Paddy Main. We have um, Jock Lewis, the professional soldier, and the diversity bringing ideas and, uh, and creating this magical recipe for the group. We have constraints which force them to be creative. And you, you use this word creative. And I, I, I bet whenever you hear the word SAS, nobody thinks of the word creative. But I think it is an organization that says you have to solve unusual problems with limited limited experience, limited opportunity to do things. Clearly a group of extraordinarily courageous people, people who have the ability to iterate on ideas, you know, work out what success looks like, and people who are to some degree not willing to give up. You know, Paddy's, Paddy Main's DSO that we just talked about, not just going through lines once, but again and again and again and again. So I think for me, that's what's fascinating. And, and I think both you and I are nervous about the myth of these guys. You know, how close are we to the reality? How close is it based on what the stories they wanted to tell, the stories they never told in the case of Paddy Main, or the stories people remember nearly 75, 80, 90 years later? I don't know that that necessarily has, is as important, and we will we'll never get to the bottom of that. One thing which I think we really do need to do maybe a couple of episodes on as well is small unit leadership. Yeah. Because I think we've, we've talked quite a lot over the last few months uh, of the last year about large organisations. Yeah. What seems to be unique or at least unusual about the SAS is this idea of small unit and the different things. So I would love to come back yeah. at a later date and talk. Um, I'm staring at oddly one of your computer screens and I can see a tank there's a perfect example of a small unit a small group of people working together yeah we should we should come back and do that anyway what's, what's your yeah takeaway I agree with all of that I think for me we we talked not that long ago about the the power of decentralization garbage organization versus spider organization all of the things we've talked about all the things you've just highlighted in terms of you the power of diversity the power of small things is is enabled by the fact that by chance by an old boys network of upper class snob by circumstance whatever it was there was the, the situation was created where these small teams were allowed to go out to the edge of the organization and start disrupting and start doing but not completely on their own so what they weren't was a paramilitary group of sort of rebels who went behind enemy lines and just blew stuff up it was all part of the requirements of the wider force it was all part of the strategy and so it's that perfect balance of small team agility, ingenuity, and adaptability to still 
working toward the larger goals of the larger organization and that for me that edge decision making is, is what i think is the true power of allowing decision making to be delegated to take risk for senior generals to to allow these things to happen we haven't talked at all in this about their bravery their moral courage in a way where they it's their reputations it, they still have ownership over people's lives and they're allowing people to go off and do these things so i think that edge decision making that edge flexibility is a really important thing and then the second thing is the the use of novel ideas and the iterative testing of novel ideas and if it didn't work well we'll learn from it and move on and this is perhaps a, an organization that moves fast to break things and i know yeah, we've yeah. talked about this but yeah we've talked about what that term really means and it's not about you know how much stuff yeah, you left in your way yeah. broken it's about how quickly can you move on and learn as you iterate and they did and you know what was formed as a air service special air service they ditched the idea of parachute jumping very very early on they picked it up again in france later on actually but but typically their raids were done by using the long-range getting group because they learned the first time that it just doesn't work as well um, and there's lots of examples of them learning from each other's mistakes and cross-pollinating those ideas the final thing for me is it's, it's this whole thing is the power of narrative and the power of storytelling whether david sterling has taken too much credit or or not to be frank it's not my battle to fight what david sterling did is what allowed the sas to still be a unit to this day and that was to create a legend and and that legend like all good legends is based off you know kernels of truth shrouded in exaggeration myth stories narratives and things that spark you know, the imagination and the excitement of other audiences and if that hadn't happened if he hadn't got Churchill excited if he hadn't got people back in the UK talking about the value of SAS raids when L detachment was less than 60 people and it was being talked about in Fleet Street it, then the SAS wouldn't be the force that it is today so the power of storytelling edge decision making and allowing people taking risk to, to decentralize your organization and the iterative, iterative trialing of novel ideas to be adapted isn't it funny you start with talking about people and their stories and then you you start to sort of take a step back and squint a little bit and you start to see these things because they're not i would argue for most people the story of the sas and sterling and maine you wouldn't get to those bits because you get stuck on the people and you get stuck on the story and you but actually it is all of those things well look thank you for that that was a that's a good boy's own episode it's a long way from dolly parton well it's a long way from dolly parton although i bet she'd have been awesome in small unit raids um for, for those of you interested what i believe rogue heroes series two is coming out soon they're filming it is a you know we, we're occasional leadership and management podcast and occasional review if you haven't seen rogue heroes series one which is on bbc i would recommend it not necessarily for the full historical accuracy but as a rip roaring boys yarn and actually you get a little bit of a flavor of what we've talked about it really is excellent
as always, Gareth, thank you very much for that. That's always a, a good fun to sort of dive into those people. Uh, we are, as you know, available on the platform known as X Battling with Biz. We are also available should you wish to email us. And the, the emails keep keep coming in for us, telling us what people have liked and haven't liked and saying hi to us. Battling with business at gmail.com. If you are a new listener, please go back and look at some of our previous episodes. You know, subscribe every Thursday. Typically, something will land in your podcast inbox. So on that note, I would like to say thank you very much for listening and see you next time. Cheerio.